And, you know, my bucket list just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Gdansk is still at the top, but, you know, the more, the more people I speak with and the more people I meet, the more places I hear about. There are people and then there are kids. As I said, kids are resilient. They're incredibly curious. These are kids who came from Poland and Russia in the days when travel wasn't exactly something everybody did. Uh, and here they were sailing across this ocean. They'd never seen an ocean before. They certainly had never seen flying fish. It was the first time a major award was given to a person who did nothing. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 47th episode of Polcast. Many episodes ago, we presented to you stories of Canadians who embarked on a seemingly impossible task to learn Polish at a night language school which I had visited. One of them was a most enthusiastic fan of Poland, Nancy Campbell. She visits Poland regularly and has even purchased an apartment in Krakow. In January, Nancy initiated an, in, an international collaboration between an elementary school in Poland and an organization out of Edmonton called No Stone Left Alone. On September the 1st, Nancy attended an event in Krakow, which was the result of this unique partnership between Poland and Canada. All right, Nancy, you, you have just come back from Poland and um, you have experienced something quite amazing in which you participated from the very, very beginning of the project. Can you tell us about the project? The project started in January when my friend from Krakow took me to the military cemetery and showed me where the Commonwealth soldiers were buried. And he asked me if it would be possible for me to find the families of any of the sold the Canadian soldiers that were buried there because he wanted to uh let them know that they weren't forgotten that their the soldiers that were buried there were being honored and remembered. I started sending some emails out. I sent some to the Royal Canadian Legion. I contacted the public affairs officer that had been stationed up in Owen Sound, which is close to my home, um, my hometown, Port Elgin. I had also come across a website about the beginning of December called No Stone Left Alone. And I'd sort of filed the information away in the back of my head because I was going to pursue more information about it come, come September in regards to getting some of the schools that I know involved. The organization partners with schools and students to make sure that every Canadian soldier's grave has a poppy on it every year. The organization is amazing. They have actually developed curricular lessons for the Alberta schools. 
They are working towards developing the same kind of programs for Ontario schools. When I contacted them, they were quite excited to hear about the Canadian soldiers in Poland, as well as myself being a TDSB, a Toronto District School Board employee. They're like, oh, let's talk. <laughs> and Tell us about yourself. I am uh, was born and raised in Canada. I'm Scottish heritage. I went to Cuba about five years ago and met a very nice Polish man who invited me to come and visit him in Poland. And a couple of years later, I had an invitation from another friend in Switzerland to go and visit her. So I thought, okay, well, I went to Switzerland, then I went to Poland. I fell in love with Krakow. It is gorgeous, just an amazing city. And through my friend Jurek, met other friends, uh, have developed some really strong friendships with uh, Goshka especially is uh, very near and dear to my heart. And uh, um, I have been back to Poland now uh, five times. It's so interesting. When I was looking at the um, website of this mm -hmm. uh, No Stone uh, Left Alone organization, it's really interesting because when you look under locations, you have all the Canadian provinces plus Poland. Yes. Poland and is the first country outside <laughs> Canada that you have managed to get on board into this whole initiative. Yes, it is. Um, it's not going to be the only one, but what they want to do is they want to get they want to get the program well established in Poland first and mm -hmm. then look at some other countries. The very interesting Polish connection with the No Stone Left Alone is Thomas, and I'm not going to try his last name. Wokashuk. <laughs> uh, there we go. He, he was the deputy premier of Alberta, as well as the minister of education for Alberta. And so he got involved with them because they were working with the schools and curriculum and everything like that. He now is not in politics anymore, but is still volunteering with the organization and was a huge help to coordinate everything. Or Maureen said she would not have done this if it hadn't have been for Thomas. Thomas is fluent in Polish and he's used to Polish customs and he also was able to make his own connections and communication without needing an interpreter. All so. that was prepared and now you went to Poland for this big ceremony that took place on September the 1st. On the Wednesday before, the we went to, we went to the cemetery and the students were there doing a dress rehearsal. Uh, it was just amazing. The amount of work that the teachers and the students did was phenomenal. And they were so excited to be part of this. The, the city of Krakow was very supportive. The Polish military. There was two retired Polish airmen that wanted to be part of this. They weren't connected with the school they weren't connected with no stone left alone they had they had heard about the event and they just they felt it so important that they get connected to it and so they came they helped with taking pictures they helped when um the people from edmonton went they took them on some tours and things like that introduced them to krakow and uh, they were just amazing fascinating to talk to interestingly the one pilot actually has two airplanes that he flew in the Polish Aviation Museum in Krakow. This is an elementary school, right? Yes, it is. So it's equivalent to our grade, you know, five to seven. And, and how did the kids prepare? Like, what did they do, in fact, before that all happened, before the ceremony? They, they actually, they, they gave up part of their, part of their summer vacation to, to work on getting ready. They sang Oh Canada 
with the best enunciation, much more clearer than any of my students sing it <laughs> in school. There was three students who read In Flanders Field. And it was perfect. The Boy Scouts from his school came and helped with the with the laying of the wreaths. The students were just so excited to be part of this. They were the ones that went through the cemetery and put the poppies on all of the uh, all of the gravestones. The one thing that this, the the uh, the school children were so excited about was seeing Canadian soldiers. There was a colonel and a major from the embassy that came to the ceremony as well. They were in, you know, full dress uniform with the braids and the medals and everything. And the students had never seen Canadian soldiers before. They were quite excited to see them and to meet them. They did spend a lot of time during the summer with their teachers practicing and perfecting their, the, their English and the, uh, the ceremony and things like that. So is there going to, to be a follow-up in the sense that they will continue this tradition of taking care of the, of the Canadian graves? Absolutely. As well as in Edmonton, there's actually a Polish school. And so they have now partnered with that school and are going to be corresponding back and forth with the, with the Polish school in Edmonton. Do we know who is actually buried there, who those Canadian soldiers are? Yes, we do. The The Commonwealth is amazing as far as keeping very accurate records. And in the plot where all of the Commonwealth soldiers are buried, there's, there's soldiers from Canada, New Zealand, from Britain, from all the different Commonwealth countries. There's a pillar and inside of that, there's like a cupboard and there's a list of all of the soldiers that are buried there. There's 30, 31 Canadian soldiers, I think it is. All of the information is also online through the military. Who else came from Canada? Maureen and Randall are the founders of No Stone Left Alone. A couple other people from their from the organization. Uh, and my dad was with me. Mm. It was exciting for him. He's 88. And for the last 82 years, he has never missed a Remembrance Day ceremony. So from when he started school at five or six, he every year has always attended a Remembrance Day ceremony. And so this was very exciting for him to be able to participate in this, the first international ceremony um, with uh, No Stone Left Alone. So this was obviously his first visit to Poland as well. It was. It was. And I'm very excited to hear that he wants to go back. Oh, really? He had, he had such a good time. He would love to go back again. Uh, when mom was alive, they went to Portugal for mm -hmm. a, a couple months. And he's like, yeah, that's enough. You know, yep, yep, been there, done that. That's enough. <laughs> I'm very excited to hear that he would love to go back again. What did he like? Well, first of all, he loves World War history. Mm -hmm. So we had we had the top three there, um, Auschwitz, Birkenau, the salt mine. Fort Allegan is, is very close to Godrich, which has the largest salt mine in Ontario, if not Canada. And just having read so much about the war in Poland and things that happened, and then to be there, feet on the ground, he, it was just amazing for him. Yeah. Now, how yeah. about you? Are you still so much in love with Poland? Oh, absolutely. You know, my bucket list just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Gdansk is still at the top, but you know, the more the more people I speak with and the more people I meet, the more places I hear about. Well, how's your Polish? I mean, are you still studying Polish? 
Um, I'm not going to my night school class mainly because of logistics. And my friends in Poland, they've been telling me that I'm getting easier to understand that my Polish is getting better. And the one thing that that you know, makes me very happy is when I speak to someone I don't know, even just something like dobre and you know something simple like that, and then they reply to me in Polish. And I'm like, oh, you know, I say, oh, move on to go to And they're like, oh, I thought you spoke Polish. Now I'm getting more comfortable because I realize, wait a minute, I deal with with English language learners all the time, and I understand them. And so I'm just going to start. <laughs> and I find that I learn more when people correct me at, you know, when I've said something, which is Goshka is great. She's got a five-year-old. So Simon and I, you know, we sit down and we read the same books and we get the same lessons from his mom <laughs> <laughs> because she's also correcting his pronunciation. Um, I went to Yurik's school to talk to the students and their parents on the, the first day of school there. And uh, Maureen and Randall, they, they had to leave and so they weren't they weren't able to go. So they said, well, please, you know, thank them on behalf of us. So I actually did my first public speaking in Polish, not a lot, a few sentences. And then I switched to English and they understood me. So I was quite proud of myself. What's the plan? Are you going to be spending half a year here and half a year there? Or what are you going to do? I retire in uh, about four and a half, five years. Mm -hmm. So after I retire, I'll do six months here, six months there. What is it about Poland that that interested you so much? It made you decide to buy an apartment. What is it? Two different things. First of all, the people, even the people I don't know, have always been helpful. And I've just felt very welcomed and just incredibly open in a lot of ways. Like I'm thinking last summer when I was there, I took a tour to Greece for a week with a Polish tour group. And I've made some great friends, amazing friendships have grown from, uh, you know, just people helping me and, uh, you know, hearing that I speak English and, you know, they're, they will speak English with me or find someone that can help me. So the people of Poland, first of all, and secondly, Krakow is the architecture is just incredible. The history is amazing. As much as I love Canada, we're really young here at 150. Like my, my, my roots will always be in my farm. You know, that's always home for me, home, home for me. Um, but, uh, you know, being able to, to travel over there and feel like it's home as well. When I hear that, when I hear the, the trumpet out of St. Mary's church, it's like, I've arrived, I'm home. And I can actually hear that in my apartment. My great-grandfather and great-great-uncle came from Scotland and settled on the farm that we still live on. So I'm the, what is it, the fifth generation now living on the farm? The farm's about three hours north of the city, so it's a little bit too far for me to be actively farming since I'm working in Toronto. The house was built in 1902. It's definitely home. Dad was born in the front in the front living room. I think that's that's one connection that I have with Polish people is like those are my roots, the land. That's my that's my roots. I'll always want to go back to that. Just like Poland is so that's their roots. That's it to have Poland back again, you know, is is so important. And I think that's one big connection between us. I get that. I understand that. To learn more about No Stone Left and the Krakow School Number 58, which joined the project, please visit our website 
at mypodcast.com. It's hard not to be charmed by Roma music and dance. Colorful, coming straight from the heart and soul, each Roma is raised in the culture of music and is great at it. The Roma in Poland are one of the Poland's recognized ethnic minorities. Recorded history of the Roma in Poland dates to the 15th century. The Roma were brutally exterminated by Germans during World War II, being treated by the Nazis as ruthlessly as the Jews. According to the Polish census of 2011, just over 17,000 people in Poland declared themselves as Roma. After Poland lost its eastern borderlands to the Soviet Union after the war, and its borders were pushed west, the first group of Polish Roma resettled in Gorzów Wielkopolski in 1947, the city which had previously been German. And the city of Gorzów Wielkopolski is the city where a famous gypsy poet, Papusza, Bronisława Weiss lived from 1953 to 1983. Her work, translated into Polish, is of great importance to both Roma and Polish culture. Every year, Gorzów Wielkopolski hosts an international festival of Roma music, International Meeting of Gypsy Bands, Roma Days. Another famous Roma culture festival is held annually in a resort town of Czechocinek. In its 21st year, this year's festival featured Roma artists from Hungary, Ukraine, Germany, Georgia, Canada, Sweden, and Slovakia. It's the largest such festival in the world and is organized under the auspices of the Gypsy King. Its organizer, award-winning Roma artist and poet Don Vassil, celebrated his 55th years on stage this year. In our previous episode, I talked to Irene Tomaszewski, an author and editor from Ottawa, who told us part one of the fascinating story of her childhood during World War II, which she shared with thousands of other children who traveled from Siberia and other parts of the then Soviet Union via Iran and India to Africa. Today, part two, the African chapter of this little-known odyssey, which Irene Tomaszewski experienced firsthand as well as researched in depth and wrote about in many articles in Cosmopolitan Review. Last time, Irene, we got in this incredible story, so little known, to Persia and to India. That's not the end of this huge odyssey. We went from India, where we had stopped briefly a couple of months, 
in a transit camp, which, by the way, had the very cute name. It was called Country Club. Even though it was a transit camp, it was still very well administered. And the Polish authorities made sure they had schools for the kids. And, you know, they were already looking after the welfare of um, of these refugees. We were waiting there for a number of things. One of them, of course, was transportation. It's the middle of the war. There was also a Japanese war, which sometimes people forget. There were submarines, German, Japanese, all over the Indian. You had to wait for the convoy. It was dangerous. But eventually... The ship was available going to British East Africa. So the Indian Ocean, these are kids who came from Poland and Russia in the days when travel wasn't exactly something everybody did. Uh, And here they were sailing across this ocean. They'd never seen an ocean before. They certainly had never seen flying fish. You know, for the healthy, slightly older kids, this was tremendously exciting. They were going to land in a, a port called Mombasa, which is actually in Kenya. Uh, and from Mombasa by train to Arusha, which is the town that's closest to Tengeru, which was the name of the refugee camp or settlement uh, where I lived. Going there, was that something that the kids and whoever was with them were looking forward to? Or was it like, oh my God, we have to travel again, that's so horrible? There are people and then there are kids. As I said, kids are resilient. They're incredibly curious. If they're healthy, they're looking around, they get excited. They're learning stuff. The adults, there was terrific apprehension. They were happy to be out of Russia, but where were they going? You know, they already had sort of a cultural experience when they saw India, when they saw saw Iran and then India, and now yet another cultural wow. It's a fairly long trip from Mombasa to Arusha. In those now, if you look at the map, you have all kinds of national parks, you know, game preserves. In those days, it was all a game preserve. So you could actually, from the train, you could look out and you would see giraffes munching on leaves on the trees and, and zebras running around. But the mothers, I don't think, were very thrilled. And they get to Arusha and they find out that Arusha witches now actually a major tourist center because that from that's where people go in order to then go to climb Kilimanjaro. But from there we had to get into trucks and go to Tengeru. Then you get to Tengeru and there are the huts. There are they are round mud huts, whitewashed though. They have doors and windows, but the doors and windows don't actually have doors that can close. There's openings in the wall. And they have thatch roofs, I think made of partly of banana leaves, but elephant grass. And yes, there was not only anxiety, but for some people, almost a sort of despair. You know, we've gone from the wolves of Siberia to the jungle here, and we'll be forgotten again. Nobody will know we're here. Mothers did, I think, what mothers so often do. You take control of your fear. And reassure your children that, yes, dear, everything's going to be all right. How long did they stay there? In my family's case, it was a little over six years. Some people stayed uh, seven or eight because we did a long time. That's a long time. But I think that any story about this, this stage of this odyssey, the African stage, has to be prefaced by something. 
I mean, we know a lot about refugees and about migrants, about losing your home, about fear and terror. We know all that, right? But how many refugees have we ever heard of who actually have reunions? Happy, joyful reunions. And they come from all over the world. They meet in Brotswav. I went to one. You know, I knew Africa. I knew, I, I've always described it as my magical childhood. It was, you know, I, I'm sure I had the happiest childhood of any child in the whole bloody world. You know, I interviewed a lot of people, and nobody has bad memories of Africa. These children had a very happy life because of the organization of the place. Nah, did they care about round huts, you know? Kids are kids. They'll sleep wherever there's a bed, and they play. And they have. Schools were set up almost from the beginning. I mean, they, they barely had anything, and they had schools. The school very quickly had music, and they, actually the schools were super. At the end of it all, when we were all leaving for our respective next part of the, our lives, for example, the, the, the older ones who went to England, they were qualified for whatever they wanted. They were qualified to go to medical school, if that's what they'd been dreaming of. Why did it take so long before these people started being taken to other places? Six years is a lot of time. Partly because they couldn't go back to Poland. They could have, but having gone through Siberia, they didn't want to. And partly because after that, you have to go where you would be accepted. And we all know that refugees are not always happily accepted, and Poles were no exception. Also, there was an enormous refugee situ uh, situation and displaced personal situation in Europe. And in Europe, the people were living in absolute misery. These were survivors of, of Auschwitz, Dachau, Mauthausen, and so on. These were high-priority refugees, and they had to go somewhere. Um, so they were looked after by the IRO, the International Refugee Organization, first. And actually, the IRO only started sending people for the remainders of us who were still in Africa much later, because they were not a priority. What do you think is the lesson from all this? I mean, you've talked to a lot of people, you have researched this, you have read all the memoirs. What are, the, what are the lessons? It all started under the aegis of, of the Polish government in exile. So we were never treated like uh, refugees, although some, um, some of the in colonial officials did want to. There were those who wanted to put a, a barbed wire fence around the settlement. And it was the Polish authorities who said, no, you can't do that. They are not prisoners. They are citizens of an allied country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had this protection. So there was a certain dignity that was restored to us. And that's why you have, you know, children could be reasonably self-confident. You know, they had good schools. They had a good cultural life. They had cinemas, YMCA, music. You know, they had stuff like that. So so they, ha they had been enriched. You know, I think that all Poles after the war suffered a tremendous PTSD, number one from what they'd gone through while they were under either Soviet or German occupation. But also, you know, the betrayal was very, very hard emotionally and psychologically. You, know, you can imagine, they've been preparing for nothing but to go back and rebuild their country. And then they found out they had no country to rebuild. That the homes they left, they'd never see again, and so on. So, yeah, it was very, very difficult for them emotionally. But they had 
these these years. However, they were all separated. They had to go in different directions. And so some of that community was lost. Then the leadership was lost, of course. So by the time they went elsewhere, they would go in small groups or maybe even individually. And it was the end. And I think that that wonderful culture that they lived in, in this settlement, you know, it was too brief. And it ended with another hardship. So that was pretty rough. What about films? What about movies? What about books? I mean, the memoirs, do you think there is enough? The story is not that well known. The me memoirs are starting to be written now. Um, quite a few of them, and some of them are excellent. Um, I've reviewed a few in um, Cosmopolitan Review, and they're, you know, some of them are really superb. As far as uh, a more universal approach to it, There's not that much done because this is really a tiny, tiny fringe of World War II, which had victims by the mega millions. If you take the Pacific War and the European War and the, you know, the millions who were killed and the, so on, I mean, and, and, and the forced migrations, this, this little happy story is a very small one. But there was this, this kind of a shock at the end that... Uh, You know, and for the older our men and women, they, they couldn't go back to their professions. They Wherever they'd go, you know, you may have been teaching anthropology in Poland before the war, but you were suddenly cleaning somebody's house. You know, you didn't have the language. I mean, it's like, it's the story of, of immigrants. We, we see them. We always hear about doctors who are driving taxis. Films, I mean, I'm really amazed. And to me, this entire story is just so full of vivid pictures why cinema people, film people haven't got on this. And you don't have to tell it as a documentary. You can make a fantastic feature out of these things. Take a small section of it. And a small section could be something in Africa. It could be Iran, it could be Isfahan, it could be... Um, then there's the wonderful story about New Zealand. Although the New Zealand people have... There have been some pretty good films made about the children. The but I'd like to see more of a, a study of it because there are some truly interesting elements of this culture because these camps were administered by the government in exile and that means their education department. And it was very sophisticated. It was very advanced, progressive. I mean, there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Victor Sharinsky, who died a few years ago in Ottawa. I mean, he, he toured these camps. There, there was care taken to make sure that these children could recover from their trauma. You know, in our little, the little place where we lived, which, you know, these little huts in a very short time had lovely gardens around them and hedges and things. Within a short time, our settlement was self-sufficient, for example, in food because a farm was started. Don't forget, this is eastern Poland that people were uh, deported from, and that was a, an agricultural area. Some of these women were very good farmers. That farm was so well set up and so well done, it produced enough food for the settlement. But when we all left, it became the beginning of the De Tanzanian Department of Agriculture's Research Center. I mean, you know, it's that when I saw that on the Internet, you know, there's, ah, we left something really good behind. So we had these, you know, an element of, of, of pride in everything that was established. I read one document. There's some pretty good documents, by the way, at the Canadian National Archives in Ottawa. I found one document where a Canadian representative from the IRO went there. said he found 
a Polish matriarchy in the middle of equatorial Africa. It was a bit of a matriarchy. The women ran the hospital, the women ran the schools, the women ran pretty much everything, except the officials who interacted with the Brits and so on were, well, this was government to government. The reason I wish more people knew about it, but maybe predominantly my own people would know about it, is that, number one, I'm not always thrilled when I hear Pauls who have very, very negative views about helping other refugees, but that's obvious. But I think more than that, you know, when I first started interviewing people for this, uh, and I'd say to them, why, why do you think your life there was so lovely? Oh, the English did it. You know, most people, it did not occur to them that the, their own people did this. And I said, no, and you know, started telling, oh, really? You know, no, they just assumed. I mean, why they thought the English in the middle of a war, you know, kind of their hearts and with all the other things that the English are rather famous for, that they would suddenly take the special care of a bunch of women and children. No, they didn't. But they did have control of British East Africa. They were able to say, you can go there. But, but you know, it wasn't all a freebie. Another document I found in Sikorsky Institute in London uh, was an invoice sent from the British government to the Polish government in exile for the transport of 600 and some people on such and such a ship, India to Africa. So we should pay for that, maintaining those camps and having everybody there. The money came from the Polish government? The Polish government in exile, uh, yes, an awful lot of it. You know, eventually the, the British government didn't recognize the Polish government in exile. Oh, and, the, and another thing, for example, the orphanage, which was huge. Half the children in that place were orphaned children. For, for me, my mother worked and also my father was in the army and he could send some of his pay to my mother. So we were well taken care of. The orphan children had nobody. So, you know, the government was looking after them. But do you know that I found this in the National Archives in, in Ottawa? The soldiers in General Anders' army took a vote that they would take some, I don't know, percent of their total pay, you know, all of them, and send it to give to the orphaned children. That's amazing. There was, there, there's an, a lot of amazing stories. Pauls tend to like to say, oh, you know, we're always divided, we're always quarreling. Well, not always. You know, there was some that that was pretty amazing. And um, so although, you know, what I make all this sound so happy uh, and I happen to know that my situation was happier. I was with my mother the whole time and there were children who left, lost both both parents. Uh, and of course, that loss was forever with them, forever. But at the same time, that orphanage was not like the orphanages you hear about in so many novels, you know, they formed f strong friendships and the authorities went out of their way to never separate close friends mm. because these close friends were like surrogate families by then and they respected that. So this, this is, this is something that I think should be studied and that's why I'd like to see more of it done because it's, it's incredibly interesting social history. To learn more about this fascinating story and to find links to Irin Tomaszewski's articles, please visit our website at mypodcast.com.
Alicja Ostrowski tells us about her experience of being black in Poland. Sometimes when I go to a new place, I'm a little bit worried about if the way I look is going to bring me any trouble. Last summer I had the awesome opportunity to travel to Poland for technically the second time. The first time I was two years old, so I have zero recollection of that trip whatsoever. So last year in 2015, for me, was pretty much the first time I've ever experienced Poland firsthand. Last year I was 19 years old and I thought it would be a good time to travel over to Poland and meet my dad's side of the family and see where it was that he grew up. I think I was there maybe for a total of six weeks interspersed because I also went to Portugal and Italy in between time but uh, that's another story altogether. Maybe I'll make another video about those places. So I feel like I had enough time to really get the feel of things. Okay, so on to the good stuff. I really want to start off by saying and really stress that I have nothing negative to say. I spent most of my time in Poznań because that's where my family lives and that's where I ended up taking the three-week Polish course. And can I just say that I felt like a walking spectacle. Whenever I walked down the road or into a store, I immediately attracted attention. Whenever I looked up or accidentally caught the eye of someone who was looking at me, they would immediately look away and try and hide the fact that they were looking at all. They would do like the quick you know, safe. <laughs> it was pretty awkward. The whole time I was in Poznań, I had seen a total of two other black people. And Poznań is a pretty big metropolitan city, so I feel like that's a pretty low number. But that also tells me that at the end of the day, I was being stared at because I was something that you don't see every day. That's all. <laughs> I didn't mind it at all. It was actually kind of flattering. But just keep in mind that if staring makes you uncomfortable, it's definitely something you're gonna come across. I never heard anyone say anything particularly negative about me or, you know, sling any slurs towards me, but you have to keep in mind that I only speak English. Polish is a very difficult language to understand, especially if you don't know the basics. So even if someone was throwing shade at me, I would never have known. Like, I don't speak your language. I wouldn't know about it. And on the topic of not speaking Polish, if you're young and you plan on being around young Polish people, you're in luck because most Polish people can speak basic English or broken English, so getting by is not going to be difficult for you. That being said, learn a few phrases in Polish because I do not exaggerate when I say people's faces light up when they hear you try and speak Polish. It's a really difficult language and it means a lot to Polish people when they see you trying to learn and trying to understand their culture. I had the opportunity to revisit a small village called Gostium that I had been in when I was two years old back in 1997. And all of the old people recognized me. That was crazy and I feel like part of the reason why they recognized me on site was because <laughs> I was a little black girl that was walked through the village all those 18, 17 years ago. So to recap, yes, you will get extra attention just for the fact that you're black when you're traveling in Poland. Um, it's not negative attention, it's just out of curiosity. And all in all, I always felt safe. There was always someone stopping me on the street telling me, oh my goodness, your skin is so beautiful. I love your skin tone, I love the texture of your hair. So yes, you will get more attention than you would have you know, in the Western world, but it's all in good nature. People just want to get to know you and make sure that if you're going to go to Poland that you make the effort to get to know 
Polish culture and the Polish people and to interact and to open up a dialogue and to really do your best to leave a good impression because a lot of people, you know, you might be the second or third person of color that they've ever spoken to like face to face. So just be a decent person, keep your mind open, keep a smile on your face and you will be 100% fine. Alicia Ostrovsky is a model who lives and works in Canada. It was the longest night of the Cold War. At four minutes past midnight on September 26, 1983, the world stood on the brink of nuclear war. The fate of our globe was in the hands of one man, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov. Within five minutes, I registered the launch of five missiles from an American base. It should have taken them at least 22 minutes to reach our territory. At most, 28 minutes. Then a siren began wailing. The upper screen showed missile attack in red letters. I thought I'd go crazy. Intuition told me it was impossible, simply impossible. You wouldn't accomplish anything with five missiles. I thought for about a minute. It was so difficult. It was as if I were sitting on a bed of hot coals. I was so very scared. Stanislav Pietrov died in May this year, almost forgotten. The world didn't notice the death of the man who saved our planet. His story was made into a documentary film. The Red Button was filmed and co-produced by Sławomir Grunberg, an Emmy-winning director, documentary producer, and superb cinematographer, educated in Poland at the renowned Łódź Polish Film School, working in the United States since 1981, author of dozens of award-winning films. We reach him in New York. How did you come across the story? The story came to me... Uh, because of my mm, work with Eva Pienta. Eva Pienta uh, was a Polish uh, film director who graduated uh, Polish film school in Katowice, and we worked together on several projects. Uh, her partner and producer of this film, Mirek Grubek, read uh, the story somewhere in the Polish papers. It, it was just mentioned that there was uh, a person whose name is Stanislaw Pietrov. He was responsible, in, in saying in short, for saving world from World War III. The, the information about him came to life like 20 years later. One uh, Soviet general wrote uh, in his memoir about this. From that moment, media started to get interested. In I went three times to visit uh, Stanislaw Pietrov. I filmed this story and became a co-producer of the film. When that happened, which is when he saw that there was apparently an American missile attack, say, on mm. the Soviet Union, 
and made that incredible decision not to react. That did not bring him any uh, gratitude from the government, quite the opposite. He basically didn't inform anyone about this. He didn't make a report. And as, as a result uh, that he didn't make a report, he lost the job. He became a taxi driver. He, he just became a uh, regular citizen living in poverty uh, 60 kilometers from Moscow in in the apartment building which was dilapidated i i've been there several times and uh, you know it's one of those places uh, you don't want to live in and uh, here you are you have a guy who who was in, responsible in in indirect way for saving world from world war 3 you know, so it took a long time for you to actually make the film, right? It was extremely complicated on many different levels. First of all, uh, when we met uh, Stanislav, uh, he wasn't in, in very good shape. Um, he had you know, problems with alcohol. He was uh, difficult to uh, talk to because uh, he was not sober. We couldn't really interview him. Mm, and it was a surprise for us. We didn't know about this. The second situation which uh, which we had to deal was deal with was that uh, Danish television started to work on a documentary about him. Danish television later on gave us a lot of problems, saying that we cannot continue filming this because they have the full right to to tell the story about Stanislav Petrov. Did they make the film? film was released uh, later than ours, but what happened during the second visit um, with Pietrov, he he decided that he doesn't like them, uh, and uh, he revoked everything what he signed, and giving giving them giving them full rights and exclusive rights for his story. So after our second visit. He, he said he wants to work with us, so he gave us the full permission to, to tell his story. They did their film, I haven't seen it, but uh, it doesn't really matter. I think more more stories, more films should be done about Stanislav Pietrov and, and what happened uh, in 1983. In 1983, uh, in, in the month of September, uh, the tension between Soviet Union and United States was very high. It was at the at the peak. Uh, Yuri Andropov, who was uh, first secretary leader of Soviet Union, was one of the most right wing Soviet leaders. On uh, September, uh, when was it? September third or fourth, uh, a Korean jetliner was shut down over uh, Soviet Union. Uh, Soviets thought that this was a plane on the spy mission. 269 passengers were killed, innocent people. Uh, and Soviet Union accused America and Korea for a spy mission. This is just two weeks before uh, what happened uh, with, uh, with Pietrov. And at the same time, uh, the reaction of American president uh, Reagan was very harsh. I think it was at the UN session, he used the term evil empire against Soviet Union. So uh, thinking about uh, September 26 and decision of uh, Pietrov, you have to think about the atmosphere of, of, of this particular time, of, of this particular month even, that uh, the tension was at the high peak, the tension between Soviet Union and Russia. And now you have 
you have a computer screen which shows five American missiles coming to Soviet Union. So in in this atmosphere, you have to look at Stanislav Pietro's decision as really very brave. At the same time, when this uh, event took place, uh, Andropov, the leader of the uh, Soviet Union, was in the hospital. He was at at the surgery for kidney uh, transplant. So <laughs> imagine that the guy who is in in the hospital during the surgery gets information uh, that there is a nuclear attack on Soviet Union. His decision could be uh, tragic because you know we're not talking about a healthy person. We're talking about a person who is in the hospital in pain. And, and he is with the unit which would allow him to send a signal to the uh, rocket facility where Soviet missiles would be sent as, as a retaliation to the um, United States. And these missiles could meet on the way somewhere over the ocean. So you actually had two opportunities to, to speak to him and to, to get to know him. What kind of person was he? He's a person of few words. He didn't like to talk about himself too much. He didn't believe that he did anything major. Uh, he said he did what he's supposed to do. He had reasons why he decided not to uh, so-called push the red button. He himself wouldn't push the red button, but he would He would start an action uh, where the information about the nuclear attack would go to the first secretary. Uh, but he didn't do it because, first of all, he was the one who designed the whole protocol, how to react in case the uh, American missiles will be sent to to Soviet Union. He, he was not following his own protocol, but he, he used his common sense. Uh, what is interesting is that his, after seeing three and then five nuclear missiles on the computer screen, he came to the conclusion that it, it is not a real a nuclear attack because if Americans would attack Soviet Union, they would use many more nuclear missiles, not just three or five. His conclusion was confronted later in the film by uh, someone who was on very similar position in the United States. And the information we received was that actually Pietrov was wrong uh, in his conclusion uh, that actually if America would attack Soviet Union, they would use few nuclear missiles, not not many to attack. So uh, he came to the wrong conclusion, but luckily it was the right conclusion for the world. But how come a decision like this is made by one individual? One individual like him who receives information on the computer that, uh, and he is in this uh, base which monitors nuclear missiles coming to the um, Soviet Union, this information would be sent to his superior uh, to general. The general would uh, send it to his superior, and it will end up uh, in the hands of the first secretary. He decided not to release information, so the information didn't reach uh, Andropov, who was the first secretary. It, later on, it, it was proven that it was a reflection from the silos somewhere in Idaho. It, it was just a computer error. Uh, this is the beginning of uh, computers, it's the beginning of this technology, and and mistakes were made. It, it just happened that uh, Pietrov was on this night shift, 
which um, was also, as he, he said to us, uh, total coincidence because someone who's supposed to be at night on this shift got drunk and didn't come to work. So he he replaced him. He was he, he got a call, you know, like 20 minutes before he has to come because this guy didn't show up to work. You were you were filming it and you're making this film. Um, 2003, four, five. Then um, Eva, unfortunately, 38-year-old young, wonderful person, and a and a great director died of cancer in 2006. But the film has a date of 2011. Oh, we had to we had to go back to film. We didn't we didn't have enough footage uh, after the first two visits, so we went again. Uh, this time with Mila uh, Grubek, we went again. We were. Actually, in the field where everything happened, we were very close to to the compound where Pietro worked uh, with him. We filmed this, we interviewed him. Then we were stopped by KGB, who realized that we were illegally in, in the military zone, and uh, they gave us some hard time. But uh, luckily, Pietro was able to somehow release us from, from this danger. You know, after after Eva, Eva died, it, it became more complicated how to finish the film and how to edit. There were different versions, different uh, options. So it, it happens. It was an uh, unusual situation. And the film was nominated for something that's called the Yellow Oscar. What uh, is it? It was uh, given to the film which deals with uh, nuclear proliferation, with nuclear subject by... Uh, one of the uh, festivals, I believe it was in Rio de Janeiro, uh, it's called the Iranian Film uh, Festival, I think it was 2012. I want to go back to you at some point and talk about amazing films that you make, especially the, the Karski and The Lord of Humanity, which has been a great success. But you always choose uh, uh, stories where there's like important and very strange decisions that people make in life. Is 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 that something that puzzles you? You know, why do people make certain choices that are so hard to understand for normal people? You know, I'm looking for films which are important for the humanity. So I'm, I think, uh, older I am, I I more carefully choose the subject matters and uh, films which have a message, films which can not just entertain, but uh, teach and educate and uh, give an example of uh, how to act, uh, how to become a good person, how to spend your life in the way that uh, you will not regret. And what about Pietro? What did you learn from making that? What I learned is that, uh, you know, the person uh, sometimes is faced with a huge, enormous decision uh, and uh, and you have to look for common sense, for logic, uh, rather than for uh, reading instructions. Sometimes breaking rules and breaking uh, uh, what someone else establishes as the way to go, maybe the right decision. Your film about Petrov, The Red Button, has it ever been shown in Russia? Uh, no, The Red Button was never shown in Russia. Uh, I don't think the current government would be interested in uh, in showing the film. You know, I have to know that the Russian television is totally uh, in the hands of the government. Something what uh, we're afraid uh, may happen also in country like Poland, where things are going this the wrong direction. Did he see the film? 
Pietrov. Ah, uh, yes, Pietrov saw the film. We sent him a copy. I was also invited to an event which took place um, several years later after the film was released. It was in Germany. Pietrov was given an award uh, of the man who saved the world. Several minutes of the film were shown on the big screen. It was a very moving, moving event. And uh, as someone mentioned, it was the first time a major award was given to a person who, who did nothing. It's somewhat comforting to think that that's not all just automated and that an individual like Colonel Petrov can still make a difference in the future of mankind. To learn more about Stanisław Pietrov and his story, as well as the film The Red Button and Sławomir Ginberg himself, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and classic Polish desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Peter, do you like canned salmon? Well, not particularly, but it's better than tuna, and I don't care for the texture or the aroma right out of the can. I'll bet I can win you over with this salmon salad. Just wait till we're done recording this segment, and if I do... You get to do the dishes tonight. Is it a deal? Well, okay, I'm in. Friends, canned salmon has a place in every home cook's pantry. It has more flavor than tuna and offers great options for a light, healthy meal when your time is short or your energy is running on fumes. This salmon salad was a favorite dish of Peter's mom's. It really should be in your portfolio of favorite recipes because it is a perfect plate when you don't feel like preparing a more complicated or involved meal. I did a little research. The fishing industry in Poland is growing rapidly since eating fish is becoming more popular. Baltic salmon is a unique Polish specialty item. Unlike the fatty farm-raised salmon, its firm flesh is only slightly pink. After cooking, it's nearly white. Whether cooked or smoked, Wild salmon provides amazing taste sensations far superior to the farmed varieties. Now, we've not had Polish canned salmon in the U.S., but we'll look for some on the next visit to our favorite Polish deli. But any quality brand will work. So, start with two small cans of canned wild salmon, drained and crumbled. Slice up two cups of boiled young potatoes, two medium tomatoes, and a couple of hard-boiled eggs. Just how much depends on how many mouths you're feeding, but two of each of these ingredients will serve about eight. You'll need maybe a cup of mayo, a fistful of chopped green onions, and finally chopped fresh dill. Fresh is always better if you can get it. Find a pretty serving plate. Polish pottery always makes a gorgeous presentation. And then all you need to do is arrange everything in layers. How easy is that? In layers, even I can do that. On the bottom, spread the potato slices in a flat layer. Then cover with the crumbled salmon for the second layer. Third, lightly spread the mayo over the salmon, and then cover the mayo with alternating slices of tomato and the egg. Show off your wild side. Get creative. 
Now sprinkle all of that with chopped green onions and finish with a generous hit of chopped dill because the dill has great flavor that is so Polish. Chill for an hour, show off your gorgeous plate at the table, and then portion it out over lettuce leaves for added effect. A glass of dry white wine or fresh iced tea will go really well with this light and healthy meal. Laura has a platter cooking in the fridge right now, so I can't wait to try this for lunch. The full recipe for this dish and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on August 16th, 2017. Smacznego! In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it's our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. We hope you enjoy the wonderful Christmas story of our Toronto music conductor and concert organizer and a music teacher at a high school in Toronto, Andrzej Rozbicki, and how he found the estranged Polish daughter of a Cuban man he met in um, Cuba on vacation. Both had had no idea about each other, having lost contact when the girl was a toddler. Andrzej found Karolina in Poland, and the father and daughter reconnected. Well, part two of the story happened last month when Andrzej Rozbicki had a concert in Poland. Karolina came to meet him there and was in fact asked even to come on stage. It was a very moving moment and a very moving meeting. Part three of the story, even more incredible, will happen at the beginning of November when Karolina comes to Toronto and both she and Andrzej Rozbicki travel to Cuba for the father and the daughter to meet and reunite. This is one of the most heartwarming and uplifting stories I have ever heard. In our last episode, we presented Filip Terlecki, a Toronto-based filmmaker. His most recent film, Suffer, was invited to the Women in Horror Film Festival, and the actress who played the main role in the film, Astrida Auza, won the festival's Best Actress Award. The award is given for performances in short films and features, and what's really special is that Astrida was recognized for her memorable leading performance, despite the film being only 14 minutes long. Congratulations to her and Filip Terlecki, the director. Well, I think it's great. I mean, I'm always so happy that we have so many interesting news to tell our our listeners about people we have already featured on podcast, and they are doing things. Goodness gracious. And I'm sure we'll hear more about Philip and his movies. Yes, and of course we will let you know what happened in Cuba in November when Andre goes with Carolina and they all um, get to know the father of the girl. And um, it's going to be quite an amazing meeting. You've been listening to the 47th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And while you are there, please leave your comments and share with us your thoughts, reactions and ideas. If you know of any interesting person or story that we should cover on Polcast, 
please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening to podcast. And we leave you today with one of the most popular Roma songs in Poland. Ai, tem